Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode number 30. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 30. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. We're here to discuss yet another chapter of Not a Fan. Today finds us in chapter 13, Whenever, What About Now? That's the title of the chapter. So, what do you think of this chapter, Greg? Highlights, lowlights? Where do you want to start? I thought this was one of the most important chapters in the whole book. Talk to me. Okay. Um, I, 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 two things really jumped out at me in this chapter. And I think it's important because it's going to tie in with what I think is the kernel of his whole orientation, which is page 21. So to go back to page 21, for those who may not have <clears throat> had us talk about it, uh, this is the page where he asks questions like, um, what, and I'm quoting, what if there really is a heaven and there really is a hell? And where I spend eternity comes down to this one question. And then and this is at the bottom of page 21 as well. I'm quoting again. I believe that the reason we were put on this earth is to answer this one question. And he's very focused on this. Um, and I think that how he's focused on it, the nature of kind of how this question gets answered and sits with us is a big part of what is answered in this chapter. And that's why I think this chapter is important. So um, maybe I'll just skip to that. And I'm, I'm going to skip over one, a couple of the things. I mean, he's really big on talking about uh, people who are half-hearted in their relationship with Jesus. I mean, we know this already, but he's really big on this in, in this chapter. Uh, people who are making excuses, who don't feel convicted, who have a lukewarm faith. And I'd like to come back to that lukewarm faith thing because that's a, kind of a taken out of Revelation. And it's a big, big misquote of, uh, of Revelation 3 there. Well, yeah, um, and I had... I have a whole issue with the whole well maybe we'll get to this sooner later but the the whole notion with half-heartedness too. Well, first of all, going back to your original point, yes, I think this chapter is all about fire insurance. This mm-hmm. chapter is all about don't put it off cuz you if you put it off too long, you'll end up in hell. Cuz you will have waited too long and then at some point it won't be too it'll be too late. It's, yes. Okay. And yes. then, but but the funny part about that is backing off that a little bit, and then I'm curious to see where you're going to go. I think if if we're thinking of this in the context of the theme of love that you've been hammering away at, the, the notion of being completely in love with God and that God deeply mm-hmm. loves us, mm-hmm. the thing that popped into my head was when you're in that kind of a situation, you don't put it off. It just happens. It just you just do it. Like if you're yeah. deeply in love with someone and someone's deeply in love with you, you're not like, well, yeah, should I go see them tonight or not? <sighs> hmm. Eh, I'll do it tomorrow. Like exactly. And so, which is a completely different orientation from this chapter, from this book, and I think this mindset, which is that knowing God is just totally obvious and it's just this binary decision. It's just a, it's a, it's an honor and offer. If you're not familiar with computers, binary is ones and zeros. So it's and there's no in between you're on or you're off. And I just, yeah, I don't see that happening. 
Well, it hasn't happened for me anyway. Maybe it happened for him. Well, I like your language there too. Like, I like a lot of things about what you, you said, like this binary decision. Like we're making this sort of decision. I mean, as you say, you're not sitting there deliberating when you're in love, right? In a certain sense, the, you know, sometimes English makes things difficult for us or language in general. But we're English speakers, so we'll talk about English. Sometimes English makes things easy, and it's a, it, it really kind of portrays the situation as it is. So we talk about falling in love, right? We talk about love in the sense being bigger than us or surprising us. We didn't see that. Where'd that come from? And all of a sudden you're there. It's like all around you. You can't get out, and you don't want to. I think there is, though. I mean, I think there is. <laughs> uh, well, it's multifaceted. I think there is a a context and a place of commitment and a place of decision where, where you do make a commitment and say, mm -hmm. yes, I'm fully committed to this, mm -hmm. especially when it's maybe uh, there's some uncertainty or you're kind of in a lull or something. Um, so I think there is an aspect of, of deciding, but I'll just say from my own experience, I have years and years and years of knowledge and, and head knowledge, but not not a lot of heart knowledge. And if the the punchline of this chapter is you got to decide and you got to decide now, it's like okay, well, I, I can mentally assent that I believe that there's a God and that the Bible's true and that Jesus died for me. And yes, I want to go to heaven. Okay, I've checked the box, but now what? I don't have any life. I'm not alive. I'm not. Mm -hmm. There's no relationship. No, exactly. Um, but if you, I mean, this reemphasizes your point on 197. He's telling the story about this uh, high school girl that died and and that, I guess, when he spoke at her memorial, the kind of the conclusion was, quote, the only thing that mattered was that she had her faith in Christ and she knew Jesus as her Lord and Savior, a.k.a. she went to heaven. Yeah. And I, I don't want to dispute that, like, knowing God and going to heaven is 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 great, but really that's all there is? Like, that's it? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. what if, not her, but like, what if someone else is a complete jerk, yeah, and yet they exactly. know Jesus and they went to heaven? And that's really all that mattered. I mean, they really screwed a lot of people in their lifetime, but, you know... <laughs> Yeah, they didn't have any friends, and they really left a lot of wreckage. But you know, they went to heaven. That's yeah. all that mattered, really. Yeah, exactly. And also, who's to judge that in a certain sense, right? When you so he earlier in that eulogy, it says uh, on the day she died, it didn't matter what her clothes, what kind of clothes she wore. I'm reading from page 196 and 197. It didn't matter who her friends were, and yet, you know how we judge a person, how we understand a person, how we understand what it meant that she might have claimed to be a Christian is a big part understood by who she was living her life, what clothes she did wear, what friends she did have, what things she did do and what things she did not do. You know, so does it matter to God? Yeah, it matters to God. And are there things that, 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 that God, you know, the people that have a relationship with God where the relationship is such that God's going to say, yes, this is, this is somebody who, uh, who loves me and whom I love. And, and maybe I, from my exposure to that person, however limited that exposure is, probably the more limited it is, I could, I could see that person on a very bad day. I would have no, I'd be very surprised. 
that God said, yeah, yeah, actually, this is somebody that I'm, I'm really in with, and this is really in with me, and you saw that person on a bad day. Okay. But it does matter how they act and who they, how they live. You know, the book of James is, is, is completely uh, all over that. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think the fire insurance piece for me, again, is, is very problematic. But your earlier point about when you're in love, you act in a certain way. You don't make cold, calculating decisions because love is simply not cold. And this is what strikes me. So your point about decision, I agree with. There are moments of decision. There's sort of this line of journey marked with prominent and sometimes less prominent points of decision. But what I would want to know is what's the basis for the decision? And what I'm reading from him, particularly I'm on page 193, um, just at the top, underneath the blinking light, his subtitle for the page. And it says, most often tomorrow only becomes today when tragedy strikes and dreams are shattered. So, um, after years of putting him off, people finally turn to Jesus in desperation, ready to surrender to Jesus their whole life. And, and, and I think this is his context. This is what it means to convert, or in, in plain everyday language, to seek out and desire to be in a living, vibrant relationship with God. Which, which then ties into his whole thing about becoming a zero. Yes. To yeah. give it all up, become nothing. And, and what, what really, really, really strikes me here, and it's interesting, too, because there's a contrast. What I found when I read, he's got these little, um, you know, personal stories at the end of each chapter, which uh, people send into him, I guess, and they put their name on it. This one's got the name of Amy Turner on it. And it struck me as being fairly different from some of the other ones that he had sent in and, or that I, he had received. And I guess what I'm seeing when I'm thinking about how he's phrasing this, you know, this whole idea of tragedy strikes, dreams are shattered, they're in desperation, and you surrender, is that it's nothing, it's, it's all about this kind of adversarial stance. And sure, there are things to, in my life uh, when I was not a Christian that uh, I was, I had an adversarial stance towards God about, but you know what? There still are now. And I hold on to those things with both hands. I'm not holding on white knuckled. I'm holding on firmly. And when God and I work through those things, we work through those things. And I'm in process in my life of working through those things. I don't think I have to have them all sorted out. And some of them, you know, um, I happen to disagree with some prevailing views in the church. And I've done a little bit more study than most people in the church. Uh, and maybe I've got some, you know, I've got some other people that I'm, it's not just sort of me out there on my own, uh, you know, interpreting books of the Bible any which way I want to. But um, some of those points of disagreement and criticism I may have with me until, you know, I die. And I'm quite happy with that. I'm quite fine with that. You know, I do think there's a dis slight difference between saying, maybe an important difference between saying, you know, I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to think about that. That whole subject just totally pisses me off. I, I'm right on this and no one's going to talk to me about it versus I'm looking at this. I have looked at it. I've got a different opinion and here's why. And I'm in, I'm in sort of dialogue, whether that's by reading commentaries, if it's a biblical question, whether it's by reading other books, if it's a sort of a spiritual theology question, a practical question of practice and how to live. 
There's just no way that this model of surrendering everything is supposed to be the model by which everybody comes to God. And hes I know he's not saying everybody, but he's saying most often, tomorrow only becomes today because you're putting stuff off. Well, you know, you know what? Maybe tomorrow becomes today when you smack into somebody in the sense of walking into them in the street as a metaphor where you just literally, a relationship begins to present itself in a way that is so alluring, so attractive, so desirable that you are moved. Yeah, and there's no, there's, yeah, I don't know if there's any place in his system for that. I don't feel like there's a place in his system for someone like me. I mean, no. in the, and following the, in fact, the next part after where you just read on 193, uh, quote, Jesus hasn't been whispering, follow me, to some of you. He's been shouting, hoping to get your attention before you lose any more in the land of tomorrow. Well, I've been listening uh, my entire life, and I still haven't really heard him, at least in the way that you describe your relationship and understanding with God. So, you know, some people would say to me, well, that's because there's probably like some unconfessed sin or <laughs> something that you're not letting. Well, or they would say, you know, that's because you're not willing to completely let go. And when you completely let go, then then it'll happen. And I'm like, let go of what? Uh, this goes back to one I think of our earlier conversations, you know. So I have to become a complete freak for God. Exactly. And then, and then it will all work. Exactly. Uh, now, I mean, I'll be the first to admit, I'm I'm a little bit, I am very afraid and do not want to be a freak. Like, mm -hmm. that's being pretty vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'd be willing to be a freak if I really felt like it would really pay off. But I'm, I'm, something tells me that's just not the path. See, here, here's the, and I, I, I so resonate with what you're saying. Here's the problem that I see. When your dreams are shattered, when you're in despair, when you're willing to surrender everything, you're willing to surrender everything. You're willing to surrender. Because uh, you don't have anything left? Well, you've got no defenses left. You've got no defenses at all. The idea is that you're totally defenseless. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You want to go into situations with your eyes wide open, but also with your heart wide open. So, you know, where it's a question of being closed-hearted towards God, that's a big problem. Where it's a question of having no defenses whatsoever, I think that is an equally big problem because you're going to swallow whatever pill they give you. Well, and then is it even a, a conscious choice? Exactly, and you're adopting an entire system. So we, this is, for me, why I think... In the evangelical church in North America, we have so many people who have bought into a system that in one way or another contradicts their lived experience and contradicts how they might want to live, raise their children, how they might, and not in major ways. But it's this whole idea, for me, this my experience has been that when you push evangelical Christians to a certain place, it's that old, that old metaphor, there's not a lot of room on the bus, but there's plenty of room under the bus. <laughs> and I've been thrown under the bus. I've been thrown under the bus by pastors. I've been thrown under the bus by quote-unquote friends because they felt that their views were being jeopardized by some of the questions that I was raising. And the only response they had, because the only thing they knew how to do, because they had bought into the system wholesale. They had thrown away their defenses, and so that's something they haven't cultivated. And God calls us to cultivate our minds, which includes cultivating even critiques against Christianity. And this is something that is totally blasphemous and foreign. Man, if there's something that's not working for you, God calls you, like Jacob, to struggle it out with God. 
And if this is not some sort of 15 minute or 15 round bout, this is a lifetime worth of you know, dedication towards something. And if that dedication means that right now you're calling yourself outside the realm of Christianity, then great. Do I think you're still having a relationship with God? Honestly, yes. What will happen to that in terms of his ultimate heaven and hell question? I totally back away from that, and I don't have to give you an answer because I ain't God. But I think he's playing too much God sometimes. I think he's playing too much, and he's putting people into a position where they're giving up their minds, they're giving, and they're not cultivating some of those very necessary resources that we have to defend ourselves. Because, you know, the whole Old Testament is filled with the prophetic focus of bad religion. You will encounter bad religion. There are times in Israel where 90-some-odd percent of what's going on is just wrong. It's bad. And if we are so arrogant and foolish to think that that's not happening today in our churches, then then um, the adversary whom I believe in, I believe there is an adversary, whether you want to call him Satan or the devil or uh, the archangel Lucifer or whoever you want to call it, but there's an adversary there pushing back. That adversary is one in all those cases because the church becomes a place that is stagnant, foolish, and completely irrelevant. Well, and in my experience, the 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 structure of it too is set up in a way that you that you can't disagree with it. Exactly. Because if you so like a classic one. In other words, if you don't conform to the system, like if you're not conforming to the herd, then there's something wrong with you, and something is suspect, and you're sinning, or you're missing the boat, or whatever. And like a classic one is the, you know, not forsaking the gathering with other believers. Yeah. So if <laughs> it's a classic setup to me, you've mm-hmm. got to come to church and you have to go to church because the Bible says you have to go to church because we say mm-hmm. you have to go to church and we all believe that. And if you don't believe it, well, and if you don't do it, then something's wrong with you. And it's like this self-referential system that there's like no way out. Like the only way to win is if you agree with their rules. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, and their their interpretation of of their rules and their interpretation of uh, of the Bible that that but they don't, they don't interpret. Even allow. They don't. Yeah, inter- exactly. <laughs> We've gotten into all that before. They just read what's there. Yeah. And and yeah. Yeah. Which is a complete myth. Yes. Yeah, I I think this this is an absolutely pivotal chapter, and I think. Uh, I would not want anyone to, who has come to Christianity through, you know, despair or tragedy or any of those sorts of circumstances. I mean, even in my own life, um, my kind of coming to, to Christianity uh, was, was certainly like coming back to Christianity because I was a Christian and then gave it up through tragic circumstances and you know, experiences of evil and then came back. So I mean, that's interesting. Those, so those those tragic experiences didn't bring you closer to God; they actually pushed you away. Well, no, exactly, exactly. The the God that I had could not was not as real as the experiences of evil that I had, you know. And so part of coming back was seeing how God really is more real, more true, more loving than the experiences of evil that I had. And that that involved me that just, just those very same sort of um, you know experiences that you would think that we you know in, in terms of not being a binary and cold calculating decision that you would want to have 
So even in here, when he's talking about, he's sort of contrasting the man who says to Jesus, you know, I've got to go and uh, bury my father, first of all. And and he contrasts that with... Uh, yeah, those, oh, oh, I totally disciples. want to talk about this. Yes. But, well, I will, I will, my only point, and you can go for it, is, um, you know, the response of the disciples is is a, a response of people who are already in a relationship with Jesus. Oh, thank you. Thank you. They come out of freaking nowhere. Thank you. <laughs> and say, oh, by the way, you and you. And they just went, oh, yeah, let's just do this thing. <laughs> like, they're the biggest idiots on the planet. These are oh. guys who have seen him do things, who have been talking about him nonstop, who may have chatted with him at a certain point, or, you know, maybe in that, in that close, there's not so much chatting. It's this kind of, you know, uh, rabbi, uh, learned rabbi, regular person sort of conversation, which has got a hierarchy in it. But nevertheless, there's there's been some something ongoing, and all of a sudden, this guy shows up. This guy that they've been talking about, that they've been seeing, that they've been hearing about, that they can't stop thinking about, that keeps them up at night, shows up and says, "Come with me." Thank you, thank you, thank you. I seriously, okay. So I'm gonna. <laughs> No, I was asking my wife about this last night. I said, what's your understanding of this passage and what happened here? I said, so just, you know, if you think of like our modern day, you know, so two guys are hanging out in their boat at the pier and some homeless guy comes up and says, follow me. (laughs) And the two guys in the boat are just like, oh, okay, sure. Yeah, we'll just give our lives to you. Yeah, no problem. Let's go. Like, something just doesn't add up there. Although that's how I've understood the story my entire life. And that's the way, I mean, the way that it's kind of presented in this book and the contrast that he's drawn is is this classic thing of, yes, it, you know, Jesus just came to these people and said, follow me. And they're like, sure, no problem. Yeah, let's not no problem. They were like, absolutely, let's do it. And I think we want to set it up like that. We, the church in a certain sense, wants to set it up like that because they want to make it about, hey, you can walk in here on any given freaking Sunday and make a decision. No, that's the magic of God, is that he just calls us. And it's, it's just this magic. lightning bolt. It's magic. And it ain't it ain't freaking magic. God's love is not magic. It's love. It's Whoa. love that you have to experience in the same way it's related to human love enough. It's distinct. It's different. But it's related enough that we have to experience it in somewhat the same way that we experience human love over time, in real situations, in ways where I'm not using the word love, but it feels like the word distrust, disparagement, neglect. It's it's really something that's substantial, right? Yeah, and yeah, and I guess as you're saying that, I just oh, what was the name of it? Oh, the book. I don't know if you read the book. It's called Unbroken by Laura Hildebrand or something. It was about this World War II pilot that was that crashed. And anyway, he kind of became a Christian. Like he went to a Billy Graham crusade and like walked forward, and that was it. Hmm. And I, in reading that book, I kind of wish there had been more details. But I, I suppose, I guess, what I don't, I want to leave room that there is a. I want to leave room for the possibility that maybe God does call some people that way. All I go, all I can do though is relate to my own experience, which is that that sure as heck has not happened. <laughs> I, Kevin, I don't even know how that's possible because even for this guy, he's a he's an adult, right? So yeah. he's lived his life. 
Yeah, and he, although in- he's kind of hit bottom. He's an alco- I think he's an alcoholic, and he... But the, again, the way the but the way the way the story is presented in the book, it's a fairly like he goes to the Billy Graham crusade like two or three nights in a row, and on the third night he's just like, "Oh my goodness, I need God. I'm going forward," and then his life changes forever. And maybe they ran out of space at the end of the book. I don't know, but it was. Well, I could buy that, right? There, I mean, that whole desperation perspective. I understand. I can understand that, and I can. I can. I can accept that. I'm just saying that if we're thinking that that has to be the norm, okay. then I think we've got a big problem. Or that if we're thinking that that is the norm, it should not be the norm. right? If you look through the New Testament, you don't see Jesus doing that with people. right? You do see him healing. You do see him interacting with people. You do see him caring and being compassionate. And out of that, there's a relationship that's built. But these kind of, you know bottom bottom of the barrel sort of situations being the norm in some way um well that's my problem i just need to hit the bottom i haven't hit bottom yet <laughs> yeah but what are you gonna do when you're down there like what are you gonna have left then i'll really people, need uh, god yeah well then i'll really, really then i'll really really see my need for god and then i'll really embrace him that's how it's been presented to me yeah but then you would embrace him in whatever form he was presented to you because i was so really, desperate yeah, if you've really given up all, if you surrendered everything you've got, if you let go of all of your defenses, if you let go of all of your your critical nature and your suspicions and your skepticisms, then everything, you're willing to take whatever comes along that's going to meet the biggest need you have in that time. It's it's so positional and circumstantial. So I could join like, a different religion maybe at that moment too. Why not? If your need at that point is to be, you know, you've got no shelter, you've got no food, you've got no relationships. If you're getting those needs, all three of those needs met, and you realize that everything you've been doing through your life has been creating a situation where you're essentially killing yourself. And the only way to live is to embrace something bigger and greater than yourself. I don't, I'm not sure why you'd necessarily go to Christianity, especially if maybe you've had situations like this in past. You've kind of moved towards or dabbled in Christianity. It's been a failure. What's to say you wouldn't say, oh, you know, this um, this Buddhist community is is doing amazing things, and these people have helped me see. Uh, I, I think that's probably a big part of, you know, why people make rapid transitions in any direction towards any religion. If they've got no defenses left, they're getting something that they desperately, they're, they're starving people, and they've been offered food, metaphorically speaking, and maybe literally. I would really wonder that most rapid and immediate transitions aren't a question of that happening. Well, yeah, and I'm I'm reading, I don't know if this ties in directly, but on 191, I, I was kind of reading that as, they were, as you were talking, so I think I drifted a little bit mentally. Um, so when fans are asked about... When they will get serious about their commitment to follow Jesus, the most common answer is tomorrow. There's a tendency to treat our relationship with Jesus like the diet we keep meaning to start. Yeah, and then in the beginning, again, it says it says in verse 20, at once. In verse 22, it says immediately. But this, t- yeah, this is just the proof text for... Well, and then didn't we... Weren't you kind of giving the background on this whole notion of burying of the... Mm. the one person needing to bother bury his father first. Didn't yeah. we on a previous podcast go, you went into it fairly in depth with that. And 
kind of explain that it's a lot more complicated than that? Yeah, like just let me go see if I can grab that. I'm just going to grab that book really quickly. Do we have the uh, chapter and verse where that is? Luke nine fifty nine to sixty. Yes. Okay. Let me just go take a quick look at that. I mean, as you're looking for that, I think it's this whole notion of radicalism. You know, let let the dead bury the dead, but you go proclaim the kingdom of God. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of situations there, right? In Luke nine, sort of fifty-seven, um, all the way to sixty-two. Um, I'll just read them out. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, "I will follow you wherever you go." Jesus said to him, "Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head." To another, he said, "So this is the case in fifty-nine. So um, he goes up to somebody this time. Follow me, but the person he spoke to. But he said." Lord, first let me bury my father. But Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. For as you go, for as you, but as for you, go and complain, uh, proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but uh, first let me say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one who has put his hand on the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And the author that I'm, um, the, the commentary that I'm reading out of, which is a social scientific commentary, basically it's sort of looking at that kind of, political social structure of the time and helping us to sort of understand what's written from that political social structure. It says, in all three of the subsequent exchanges, in all those three I just read, the issue of breaking with one's biological kin group, so one's family and one's extended family, and the social network in which it is embedded is sharply raised. And so the, the problem here is that, not that Jesus is saying, don't literally, I, I think in this case, Kyle's got it right. You know, it's not literally uh, you cannot bury. There's not time enough for you to bury. And I think the time, the previous podcast, when, when I raised this, Kyle was not at all clear on this and made it look a little different than I think he's doing now. The notion here typically is not that this father's father is even dead, but that um, he is saying, let me fulfill the duties of sonship. And once I am my own man and my father is dead and I do not have to fulfill those obligations, that I will come and follow you. And I think then Jesus is saying two things. One is your family is, is the, the group of those who believe in me. That is your family. Treat those as your kin. And the other is um, even though it would be honoring within a Jewish system to fulfill your sonly duties, um, that is not the most honoring thing for you to do. The most honoring thing for you to do is be in right relationship with me. So on the one hand, your family is those who are obedient to me, those who are Christians. And the other is, above and beyond whatever the Jewish tradition may say, being in right relationship with me. This is sort of, sort of this sort of new thing that Jesus is putting over. You know, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But bear in mind, if you're starting to put those things in the law first, you you missed the the the, the punchline and and Paul's big on that right he's really big on that the big thing is Jesus and being in right relationship with Jesus if you think you can follow the law and ignore Jesus you're totally wrong you've got it wrong and I think that's that's part of what's going on here yeah, I'm just mulling over this notion of follow I guess as you were talking that struck me the it. 
Sometimes I guess I think I'm a little self-conscious as we talk about this, because I think that some people probably listening to me talk think that I'm just looking for like any way out that I can find. <laughs> I'm really oh, not. Oh, you're looking for an excuse, like at the bottom of page 190, or yeah. you want to be half-hearted, <laughs> or don't feel convicted, or you have lukewarm faith, like at the top of 191? <laughs> exactly. Um, but th- this notion, but seriously, follow... So, okay, he has... He's kind of just made this notion of following all about that you just commit to Jesus. That's, I think, his notion of follow. But in, I mean, really, what was the context of what was going on there? Was he saying physically follow me? Follow me to the next town that I'm going to? What exactly did follow mean? And what does it mean... Well, maybe, I don't know. I guess I'm going in circles. I guess I was going to ask the question, well, what does it mean for us to follow Jesus today? Like, what does that really mean? I think you would come back against that and say that's not exactly the point. Well, I don't know. I, I It probably is the, like, I think, it, I think it is the point. I think follow means literally be in right relationship with. You know, whether you want to, like, convert to Christianity or however you want to put it, I think what what the bottom line is, is be in right relationship to me. What, that God is saying that to us. And what does that mean? How does that look? Different for every person. Different, different for every person, though I think it's got similar markers for everybody. You know, a sense of openness, willing to dialogue. You know, how would you have a, how would you have a good relationship with another human being? And, and, you know, one of the key things to think about for for some of us is that if we would honestly look at our relationships, whether familial, friendship, social, work, whatever, and we can't find too many good ones, then we might not really be people who've got a a fair sense of what it might be to be in relationship with God either. But if you do have, you know, if some of your relationships are more or less working out, if they're more or less fulfilling, if you find that, you know, there's a mutuality there, ask yourself, well, Okay, what is it that makes those relationships work? And and when I feel sad about that relationship, when I miss the other person, when something goes wrong, what's that like and what causes it? And then how do we fix it? And you would All say that's things. what happens with God? Absolutely, at least. I think there's more than that, but I think there's at least that. You know, I have a responsibility Within my marriage relationship, um, I have a responsibility to my kids. I have a responsibility to my friends. Not that like this this big onerous thing, but that my heart is predisposed towards someone. And because my heart is predisposed, I am already, as it were, leaning forward. I'm already, you know, motivated towards that person. It's not necessarily, you know, and that doesn't always um, carry the day. It's not always enough. Sometimes uh, I do what I do without feeling that sort of disposition, that friendly disposition. Sometimes it's because I think to myself, you know what, I think this is the right thing to do even though I'm not feeling like it. But I have to really check myself because if that's all I'm doing, then it's not really a, a real relationship. It's some sort of obligation. God is not an obligation. God is not somebody that we meet in despair with all our defenses down and drop everything and say, you know what, um, whatever I have that has to go, I don't care and I'll just let it go. I think somebody who's uh, in that position is somebody who has lost their grasp on life. 
and who has actually lost their grasp on who God wants them to be. If you're willing to sacrifice your entire person, your personality, your understandings, your past experiences and how you've interpreted them, if none of those things have any virtue to you, then there's no way that you're going to have any type of yardstick to sort of measure what's going on when you enter a relationship with God. And that relationship with God is always mediated. It's always mediated through at least the Bible, but usually through a church, which means a group of people, which means, you know, people in power positions, people who want to try to influence you for various reasons and in various directions. If we don't have the skills and abilities to navigate those situations, even while being open, there's a difference between being open and having no defenses. Having no defenses is perilous. And I think that's a lot of what we expect conversion to look like. That's a lot of what he, Kyle Eidelman, in this book, that seems to be the main way he's advocating that people come to God. And I think that that is an extraordinarily dangerous way. It puts in a tremendous amount of power and responsibility in the hands of other people. And certainly, you know, I know we've both had experiences where churches are... um, Well, churches love to fill that role. They do, and sometimes they're they're not safe places. I don't so much disagree with Kyle. I don't so much think that we shouldn't, in despair, surrender a lot of stuff. We shouldn't say, you know what, this isn't working. I, I'm I'm living my life so not as not so as to live, but so as to die, and I want to live. But I'm saying that I think that even these people who would go through these moments of despair need to be encountering communities that are mostly marked by people who have, who are in a relationship with God that is characterized by love, characterized by love and truth. And for all we know, maybe that's going on, but we haven't really heard that message in this book. Yeah, and if it was going on, like you say, you'd be shouting about it. You know, you jump up and down about it. You, like, rush to spend all your time with somebody that you love. You, you know, it's not like you've got to force yourself or you're sitting there dithering. <laughs> and yet, I don't see that in Kyle. I don't see him, I don't see this kind of, you know, if you want to be, you use the word f- fanatical, I think. But if you want to be, you know, on the edge or you want to be, if there's something I'm going to be out there about, you know, if I'm going to stand out in a crowd, I just went to go see my daughter's dance recital. And 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 at the very end, I thought there was an award that was going to be presented. And, and at, at, at a certain point, it was between my daughter and another girl. And I just realized, you know, I, I was saying to myself, you're going to get up and you're going to shout and applaud and scream if your kid gets the award. And I thought, I'm going to be a little bit embarrassed. But it wasn't this sort of, I was forcing myself to get up. It was... I just knew it was going to happen. <laughs> I was sort of saying, get ready for it, buddy, because you're going to do it because I'm, you know, I'm crazy about my kid. And if she gets this big award, I'm going to do that. And and I don't care if, if other parents think, oh, yeah, you should, that's a little bit too boisterous. I don't care what you think. And it's sort of like that, right? That's the same sort of thing you'd want to see or you'd expect to see. I would expect to see that sneaking out in different places in this book, this kind of uh, – um, exuberant relationship, this kind of joy or just wow. And I don't see it at all. 
You've been listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment on iTunes or over at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 30. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available at the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is made possible by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode.